So it's my pleasure to introduce uh, today's speaker, Professor uh, Dr. Gene Schultz. Uh, Gene got his PhD actually from Purdue uh, many years ago, and he has uh, uh, obtained since then too many awards to enumerate. Uh, let me just mention uh, the faculty positions uh, he has held at uh, such places as University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, at Berkeley, at uh, Caltech. And uh, he also uh, worked with uh, SAIC and uh, uh, has won uh, many, many awards and spoken at the very, very best uh, venues. It is really our pleasure to have our alum back. And he also spent three years with us here from 1998 to 2001. We had that pleasure and honor of having him here. Thank you. And he's going to talk about intrusion detection. Okay, we have those slides on. We okay? Ready to roll? I'm here to talk about intrusion detection, event correlation, approaches, benefits, and pitfalls. What I'm going to describe to you in as few words as possible is how is it possible to take lines of research that are being out there, published out there, and make them your own, actually apply them and use them in something that you can use in real life situations. And I work for Hightower Software and I'm the chief technology officer. And if I didn't have an academic background, I'm quite convinced that what we do at the software company wouldn't be nearly as good as if I didn't know the kind of things that I'd learned out in the academic arena. And I, I went to the serious website today and I found some very a very interesting statement. So the area of event reconstruction in computer forensics deals with analyzing and evaluating data obtained from a system and use it to determine what happened. The data recovery process is a well covered area within computer forensics, but little work has been done on how to actually analyze and evaluate the data. Only very crude tools such as Mac Times and individual log analyzers exist. Now this was a student's master's thesis several years ago. And I contend with you that what was written here four or five years ago isn't true today. That there have been huge advancements in terms of being able to understand exactly what happened when attacks happen, when there are denial of service attacks, when there's malicious code attacks, when you have hacker attacks, when you have insider attacks. And as one solution to the problem, we have network-based intrusion detection. And network-based intrusion detection means basically that we look at the traffic that goes over the network. We have some way of recording the data from packets. And then we try to determine whether any of the commands that have been sent over the network or any of the data that have been sent over the network match any known patterns of attacks. And these are often known as signatures. And if the signature library contains an entry that matches what went across the network, then some kind of alarm, usually in the way of email, is issued to the intrusion detection monitoring people. And so, for example, in this case, this is a pretty simple attack. What somebody is trying to do is connect to what in Windows systems is known as an administrative share. Administrative share allows you to do things like make updates to Windows systems, to be able to do things like change the configuration. And net use star backslash backslash 128.8.45.139 slash C dollar sign means all I have to do is enter the password of any administrator on the system and I get access to the share. Oh, by the way, one of the limitations of security here is that there is no limitation for bad logons. I can keep trying to enter 
a password here until you know what freezes over and I will not be locked out from trying to connect to the share. Now there's a widely used intrusion detection tool called Snort and there are more actual deployments of Snort than any other intrusion detection tool. It is a network-based intrusion detection tool and what it will do is if it sees a pattern of traffic going across the net that matches any of its known entries then it will send you a message that looks like this. What happened with Snort you can see in the upper left hand corner that rule 1913 fired and that this is an RPC stat D UDP statmon name format string attack. Any questions? <laughs> what this means is RPC is a remote procedure call. Many of you know what that is from your programming experiences. That enables a client to know how to communicate with a server and vice versa. It's using the status daemon, which um, is used for things like determining which version of pro programs and routines are in place. And UDP, it's using the user datagram protocol at layer four of the seven layer OSI model. And it's saying that somebody's sending a specially formatted string to the RPC server because there is a bug, a programming error that causes when that string is accepted it causes the program to go into an abnormal state and in this particular case because you can see attempted administrator privilege gain priority one, somebody would get root on this box or super user if they successfully sent this string to the machine then that was being attacked. And you get other information out of it too. You get information like the source IP address, the source port, the destination IP address, and the destination port. Notice I just made them up here. These are all RFC 1918 addresses, private addresses, so you wouldn't suspect somebody else had really been attacked out in real life. There's also a tool that was developed by a person who took a number of courses from me when I taught at UC Davis and it's called CMDS or the Computer Misuse Detection System and what it does is it works on individual systems, it's host-based intrusion detection and it's shown a series of events here which you can tell immediately that are very suspicious why. Well look at the times. It's very unusual when people do computing activity at 4.33 in the morning although for computer science majors I don't know. You know, they, they may still be up trying to get that assignment done. But notice that this activity does occur at a suspicious time, and it says, oh, by the way, the SU command has been executed, and if you know what SU really means, it really means substitute user. Does not mean super user because you can SU to any account you want if you're root. It means substitute user. And after the person had entered the SU command, the program changed its privilege level, meaning that chances are somebody got root. And then uh, there is an immediate modification in a file called Etsy Shadow. For those of you who know Unix, you know that that is a common name for the real password file in Unix systems. And then there's a critical modification of a file called .rhost, and that sets up trusted access so that I can gain access to other systems remotely, possibly without using a password. And so obviously this is a, an attempt to create a backdoor once somebody has gained illegal access to the system. Well, I would love to have told you five years ago or ten years ago, uh, Dr. Spafford and I worked on one of the earliest intrusion detection systems many, many, many years ago. But the, I would love to tell you that intrusion detection systems will solve a lot of your problems. But I have learned that they are not sufficient. They're good, but they're not enough to be able to tell you everything you need to know. And for one thing, where you place an intrusion detection system will determine how efficient it is. If you have network-based intrusion detection, but you don't place it in certain subnets, 
it's not going to be able to place and pick up the data for that particular section of your network. And if you have other devices too, they actually record a lot of data that people often don't really even look at or analyze. Certainly intrusion detection systems might miss this other output. If you know anything about tools like the name of Fragroot and things like this, they're designed to trick intrusion detection systems into missing detecting certain, uh, certain output that goes over the network. But firewalls and routers will pick up this kind of traffic even though you've tried to fool the intrusion detection systems. And it is true that intrusion detection systems today are better than they ever were before, but they really are still subject to certain limitations. Number one, something called a correct detection rate or a hit rate. And what a hit rate means is that when an attack really happens, what percentage of the time does the intrusion detection tool report that attack? And perhaps even worse, unacceptably high false alarm rates. And if you look at the false alarm rates of today's tool, that means that the tool said that there was an incident, but there was no incident. And this is costly in terms of frustration to technical staff. This is costly in terms of investigations that get initiated that don't have to be initiated in the first place. And false alarm rates are just plain everyday annoying. So if you look at the efficiency of an intrusion detection system, the intrusion detection system can either have the output that said an attack occurred or that no attack occurred. If an attack occurred and the output said, yes, the attack occurred, then you have a correct detection. But if a attack occurred and your intrusion detection system missed it, then you have what's called a miss. And if the attack did not occur, but your intrusion detection system flagged the attack, you have a false alarm. If you have an attack that did not occur, but the, the intrusion detection system did not report anything, then you have a correct rejection. And then, now the tricky part is how to actually calculate how good the intrusion detection system is. And some of you have an engineering background and you're very familiar with something called signal detection theory. And signal detection theory will come up with a distribution of all points in which some event has occurred in which there has been signal plus noise versus the distribution of events where noise alone has occurred and the separation of the means of these two Gaussian distributions would signify how good intrusion detection is. So if signal plus noise was approximately the same as noise, you would have an intrusion detection system that was almost worthless. But the further apart the two distributions become, the better the intrusion detection system. Lately in computer science, the favored method of determining the efficiency of an intrusion detection system is Bayesian intrusion detection rate. And for those of you who know something about Bayes' theorem, which is probably just about every one of you, you know he was a theologian that did great math in England. And Bayesian inference really just tells you what the probability of one event given that another event has occurred. And in fact, the formula is the probability of A given B equals the probability of B given A times the probability of A, all that divided by this lower, this denominator term, the probability of B given A times the probability of A plus the probability of B given not A times the probability of not A. Now, I'm not here to talk about mathematics with you so much, but just to say that the Bayesian detection rate can be rather readily calculated because let's suppose that we have an event that's uh, L sub I, and that's that an attack has occurred. That symbolizes that an attack really has occurred. And I'm sorry, uh, I, I sub I, that an attack has occurred, and that I sub J means that, nope, there is no attack. This is normal network behavior. 
A sub I means an alarm has occurred, and A sub J means no alarm whatsoever has occurred. You could calculate the Bayesian detection rate by using the formula here. I won't read it to you because it would be a little bit monotonous, but the intrusion detection, the Bayesian detection rates are regularly calculated for the major kinds of intrusion detection tools out there. And if you'd like to have the bad news, there are very few tools that get Bayesian detection rates of about 0 0.80. 0 0.80 is kind of the upper limit for calculated Bayesian detection rates. Some of the worst tools get Bayesian detection rates of about 0.47. That's, for instance, SRI's Emerald tool scores about 0.47. If you use Snort and you don't tune it, and get some of the old-fashioned signatures out of its signature library, you'll end up with a lower rate along that way. And most commercial tools score somewhere between about 0.60 and 0.80, and a lot of tools that aren't really used much commercially score lower than that because they haven't been as thoroughly tested. And the point I'm trying to make is that intrusion detection is good. I'd rather have an intrusion detection, Bayesian detection rate of 0.80 than not have anything at all. I'd rather have 0.70 than not anything at all. But there are other pieces of information about attacks that can be very worthwhile. And for instance, your router is going to have logs. Chances are that will give you valuable pieces of information. Your firewall. Actually, if you ever take a SANS course, they will tell you that the most single valuable source of information about attacks on the network is your firewalls. So why don't people look at their firewall data? Because they're not crazy, right? Anybody ever looked at firewall data and will admit it? Oh, my goodness. Okay. There, there's special therapy available for people like you. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's monot I mean, how did you do it? I mean, how long did you do it, I should say? Uh, long enough to get a paper published. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then there's also, of course, your network and your host-based intrusion detection systems. Your web servers will have logs. Your FTP servers will have their own application logs. There's actually a lot of places on the network you can look. Plus, individual hosts will have their logs. Windows systems don't have great logs, but if you know about event logging, they can give you those data. And Unix systems have pretty darn good logs. You know, if those of you know Unix, you know there's UTEMP and there's WTEMP, and then if you're really lucky, you might have other ones that show you things like um, which particular commands were executed at which particular time and so on. And so all these can provide a source of data about what's happening as far as the security of your network. But you run into the immediate barrier. There's too much of these, these data to be able to process. And the volume really can be so great that it's impossible to look at. And I take my hat off to you for, for looking at that volume of data. You can have, you know, just typically like for a network, maybe like, oh, the ECN network here at Purdue or something like that, you'd expect at least one to eight gigs gigabytes of data for every day from a single network. And most of this output is going to be something called syslog. And syslog is system logging. It's going to come out of your intrusion detection devices. It's going to, most of them, it's going to come from your firewalls. It's going to come from your individual hosts. 
but there really are way too much uh, pieces of information for you to really read and digest. And then also, by the time you're looking at these data, you're already way behind the power curve as far as being in near real time. And then, of course, what are you going to do with the data after you're through with it? Somehow you've got to archive it, and archiving these data can, can really be a problem. I mean, I'm telling you that easily, if you just calculate the simple mathematics of 8 gig gigabytes of data that are coming through every day, after a while, you're going to need some major disk storage space or a storage area network to be able to place these data in so that you can get to them again if you need to. So solution number one is called data aggregation. And data aggregation basically means gathering data from different sources into one place so that at least you can see them from a single console. And so normally, for instance, when you configure a Unix system in, in you know the file, etsysyslog.conf, and you're configuring etsysyslog.conf to send certain levels of priority of syslog data over to certain IP addresses, normally you send to a central console so that you can see all the data there at a single place. And that helps to, at least to some degree. You can also do that with other kinds of intrusion detection data if the device doesn't use syslog. But event correlation, which is not the same as data aggregation, goes further. Because what event correlation means is that you have numerous different security related events and you combine them to get a picture of what's really happening when there is an incident. In fact, what you're really trying to do is fuse the data so that you come up with one conclusion about whether was this a security related breach or not. What you have to do here is you have to have multiple pieces of data, multiple events, multiple syslog messages, multiple types of other kinds of output, in which you have things like the source IP address, who originated the traffic, the destination IP address, who was potentially attacked, what network routes were taken in attacking or at least launching this traffic, what type of attack does this appear to be. And a lot of people don't realize that when we look for attacks on the network, we always think of hacker attacks. And they're, they're serious and they're bad and nobody likes them. But a lot of people don't realize that about 43% of all Internet attacks, according to the Search CC in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, are denial of service attacks where people are just trying to bring things down. What kind of malware? was placed on systems that were victimized. What time did the activity begin and what time did it end? That is so important. And by the way, if you don't have the clocks right on the sensor devices, correlation doesn't work right. you got to make sure, and one of the first tricks of a bad person, if they break into a system, will be to go and reset the clock, and now the events for that system will be out of sync with the other events that are happening that are related that would enable you to, to do event correlation. You should base event correlation on both incoming traffic and outgoing. And a lot of people think, well, why not just incoming? And that's important, but outgoing traffic will tell you if a system's compromised because a compromised system will try, let's say, to reach a certain port on a remote system or try to go to a known bad IP address, something where there's a malicious site, maybe one controlled by the attacker. And event correlation, I don't know about you, but I've actually worked the field of intrusion detection operationally. Any sysadmins here? Any of you? If you've been a sysadmin, you've had to probably correlate data in your own mind 
So there is some kind of mental correlation that goes on. The problem is, though, is that mental correlation just can't keep up with the rates of output that you get when you have a full network that's feeding you data. So we have a number of ways to do event correlation. The first is called statistical, and we can use statistical approaches, like, for instance, those of you who know about the correlation formulas. One of the most useful of these formulas is the product moment correlation for certain kinds of data. I won't read the formula off to you here, but you can correlate for instance, that each particular activity of each particular host at point A and then at point B in the network to try to determine if something systematic is happening. That has to be done pretty much on a per host or per group of host basis, so there are some kind of limitations to applying statistical approaches. Then there's the Bayesian approach, and I did a research study back in 2003 at, at the University of California in which I tried to figure out if we could use Bayes' theorem to actually figure out what the probability of a, in an individual host being compromised was. And you simply, if you consider, for instance, that the probability that a given host is compromised is, let's say, 1%, the probability that it's not compromised is, let's say, 99%, because it'll be the complement. And so you can figure out the traditional probabilities if, if a machine has been compromised and thus it gives us symptoms of being compromised. That's be given that it really is compromised versus the gives the symptoms that is compromised if it's really not compromised. The bad news was is I ended up with very low output for Bayes' theorem, numbers like 0 0.15, 0 0.20, 0 0.25, not, not very good in prediction at all. And so I published this once and then moved on to a different area. But there are two really widely used approaches to event correlation now. The first one's called alert fusion. And what happens here is you take the various features that are involved in the various kinds of events that have happened and the information you have, weight each of the features according to how important it is in coming up with a conclusion that you do have a single event that was generated by some malicious code or some malicious person. And based on how close the, the observed values meet your expected values, then you can determine whether or not you just tell the monitor the person who's monitoring your network, that there is one incident here. Yeah, it looks like seven or eight different events, but it's really one big related incident. And Valdez and Skinner at SRI International out in Palo Alto have done a lot of work on that. Also, there's uh, other work that's used more statistical approaches like correlation and aggregated relationships between the various outputs that you get from systems. But the approach I want to focus on for the few minutes I have remaining is data correlation. What, what you do with data correlation is you look at the various features and elements within data to determine whether or not there is some kind of security breach or at least whether or not an attack had occurred. And there's two main types of approaches for data correlation. The first one I would like to call microcorrelation. Microcorrelation means that you, on the surface, have more than one indication that the, uh, an event occurred, and these indications are from different devices on your net. And macro correlation, which is based on event change. Now, if you go back and you look through the Sirius library, you'll notice that somebody named Florian Kirschbaum actually did his, his PhD thesis, thesis based on event change and predicting whether or not an attack had occurred based on change of events, only he called them hierarchical events. 
So these might get different names in different veins of research, but certainly what we try to look at in macrocorrelation is event A that leads to event B, event B that leads to event C, chains of events that tell us that something's wrong. Now here's an example of microcorrelation. This is the output of snort, and it's told us that we have a remote procedure call, port mapper request, that is, constitutes an attack. And what somebody's trying to do is probe the remote procedure call service of a particular machine to gain information that can be used to attack other machines. Therefore, this is not a high priority because this is just a probe. But it still could be significant. But the snort has seen this event. This is exactly the same event as seen by the checkpoint firewall one. Exactly the same event. I had them sitting on the network, and, the, and, and they both picked up the event when I generated from my vulnerability attack tool. I generated an RPC probe attack. And for those of you who know some of the commands in Unix, you're trying to, it's trying to send commands like show mount minus E and, and things like this to try to find what's mountable and it's mountable read only or mountable read write and things along that line. Exactly the same piece of data here. In microcorrelation, the fact that you had two different devices see the same event at the same time would cause you to have a correlated event. But I argue with you that that's probably not very complete. It really doesn't tell you very much about the attack. And that another approach might be better because if you look at attack strategies as used by people who attack systems, there's a number of different phases of attacks. There's the early reconnaissance attacks where it's just like a burglar, somebody trying to break into your home, rattles the doorknob, tests to see whether the windows are locked and things like this. Then there's uh, scanning, and scanning will tell you which specific vulnerabilities there are. Those of you who know about vulnerability scanning tools, there are tools like Nessus that will tell you where the vulnerabilities are in remote systems. There's also commercial tools like Qualys, and the commercial tools like ISS, now IBM, and Foundstone, and other ones. Then the bad people try to gain system access. If they do that, if they're going to do damage, then they do damage to the system. I've seen some people enter commands like rm minus rf star, uh, I'm sorry, rm minus rf uh, slash star dot, uh, I'm sorry, star dot star slash. In other words, start at the root directory of a Unix or Linux system and delete all the information, all the files from this point on down in the system. By the way, a student do that to me once in a lab that I was teaching, undergraduate lab. I allowed him to do it at the end of the lab, his last one out. And guess where he, what directory he got to? Anybody know? It wiped out everything in slash and root. Wiped out everything in dev. It wiped out everything in bin. And it didn't stop until it got to Etsy. And about halfway through the Etsy directory, boom, suddenly system was gone. So that's interesting. Don't try that in your own labs, please. And then the last stage is to track coverage. And what you do here is try to use something like encryption or hidden programs called rootkits so that people can't detect your presence. So here's an example of ma macro correlation. Here we have event A followed by event B followed by event C. And this characterizes a particular attack. Event A could be a vulnerability scan, a Nessus vulnerability scan. B might be a successful connection inbound from the source IP address to the destination IP address. And event C might be a successful connection back. That certainly is something that tells you that something's wrong. Because if somebody vulnerability scans you, 
you then gets a successful connection in, and then you immediately give a connection back to that host. That characterizes a fair percentage of patterns of attacks. And again, every event has to be detected by more than one reporting device would be a requirement. And you could be, I, I would say in, in my own experience, I could be 95% sure that there was an attack if this pattern of events had happened. Macrocorrelation also tends to lower false alarms because microcorrelation only looks at one event seen by more than one device. But let's suppose that we have an A leads to B leads to C chain of events. If B is a false alarm, think about it. Okay, the microcorrelation will still see A successfully and it'll be correct. It will still see C correctly, but because B is a false alarm, it has now fired a false alarm, or for the three events, it's wrong on one of three. However, in the case of macrocorrelation, A must be true, B must be true, and C must be true if the event has occurred. Since B was false, then we can say with, with a confidence that we do not have an attack. And there's another problem, it's, it's a fancy, and really not a very fancy term, it's called zero-day attacks. And zero-day attacks means that somebody launches a brand new attack that nobody knows about. And macrocorrelation also can help you discover zero-day attacks. And the reason this is important is that right now, you know, you, you read about the, I don't know if any of you read bug tracks or the other security focus or the other sources on the internet that tell you about new vulnerabilities. But what the bad guys often do is hoard. Their, their, their vulnerabilities they find. Sometimes they try to sell them to the highest bidder. I don't know if you know, there was an attempt to sell a vulnerability in Vista for tens of thousands of dollars. And I heard the person was successful, believe it or not. And I don't think it went to Bill Gates. I'm just guessing. Anyway, uh, in the case of zero-day attack, somebody launches you something that your intrusion detection system can't see very well, right? Because it's a brand new attack. Its signature library is not going to have that attack in the library. But this, the logic of macrocorrelation really doesn't depend on knowing about specific attack methods. Only things like patterns of connections between machines and the type of information that's exchanged. So event B could be a telnet connection, or it could be our login, or it could be secure shell. And the fact is, is that the same pattern, A leads to B leads to C, would still occur even though the specific nature of the kinds of uh, protocols used and maybe the data that are sent between the different protocols would not be known. Macrocorrelation can also capitalize on vulnerability data. And here's what's really so important about this. Let's suppose we have an attack launched against, let's say, uh, uh, Linux Red Hat Enterprise 4.0 system, okay? So somebody's trying to attack, and you know, there have been lots of bugs in GNOME and, and other programs with, within Linux. And so somebody has an attack, and they send that attack at that machine, but that machine's been patched. Well, how do you know the machine's been patched? You do a vulnerability scan, right? You're one of the good guys. And you find out that there's no vulnerability of, let's say, the latest GNOME format string problem or whatever the case might be. And so because of this, you have, you can build a logic now that A leads to B leads to C and leads to D. And D means was vulnerable. It's a simple condition, was vulnerable. And if you have a vulnerability database that says, but this machine was not vulnerable, then you're in good shape because you, can, you don't have to sound an alarm. You don't have to get people going as far as incident response goes. This also lowers false alarms considerably. 
Well, I do automated data correlation for a living. That's, that's my livelihood right now. And I'm telling you, if you want to do it, you have to consider four things. The first one is data transport. The second, you have to get the data to where they need to go. You need to normalize the data. That is, you have to parse the data so that you can understand what's what. Oh, this is an IP address. Oh, this is the name of the protocol. Oh, this is the name of the time that this event happened. And then you have to also reduce the data because there's way too much data coming in for you to be able to process it all. So and somehow you've got to weed out the irrelevant data quickly and you have to also do rule-based analysis of the data to find out what constitutes an attack, possibly a security breach. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but this is a model that was developed at the University of California at Santa Barbara by some students of Dick Kemmer, Professor Kemmer, and, uh, and also this is out of the event correlation research that they were doing. And what they're saying is that you have to do things like normalization, pre-processing to filter out bad, bad kind of data. You have to fuse alerts so that you don't send a separate alert for related events. The, each related event. You have to verify that the alert is indeed a, a valid alert. You have to do thread reconstruction to re determine whether or not you really have a series of events or whether you have one event and so on down the line. I took this model as well as a number of different things that have been done in event correlation and built this. This is the basic model behind the appliance that my company sells. And I'm not here to get you to buy it or anything, although if a couple of you wanted to work for us, we'd just love to have you. Oh, by the way, we're three miles from Laguna Beach in Southern California. When I left yesterday, it was 85 degrees. When I came to Chicago and landed, I don't think it was above the teens. And I'm from Chicago originally, so I'm used to it. But I'm spoiled from living out there on the West Coast. But anyway, there's some weirdnesses. And no, they don't know what basketball is out there. So there's some downsides, too. You know, those of you who are real Hoosiers know that, you oh, you can tell when a new child's born because basketball hoop goes up over the garage. Anyway, the Hightower, you think I'm kidding, don't you? The Hightower model, what I have tried to do in this model is on the basis of not only Kemmerer's research but others, come up with what I consider to be essential elements that you would need for event correlation. So notice that we need message collection from different data sources. When we get the data, we have to normalize the data and tag them so that we know what each individual piece of data is in case we have to do queries for that data at some later time. After we have normalized and tagged them, we have to parse the data. And those of you, some of you have learned through compiler theory about Lex and Yak and all that other stuff. And that's the same kind of thing we have to do here, only on a much lower level. And then we feed this to our rules engine. And then this goes written to a database uh, system that manages a relational database. We also write to a flat database. And we have a user interface that in in interfaces with this. And there's some other components here that are lesser components, like the actual message generators, in case there is a successful attack. But uh, constructing this model which really works in real life because we QA test this product. We, we send attacks, just a huge number of attacks against this tool day and night. And our, our criterion is that it has 100% hit rate or correct rejection rate and a 0% false alarm rate. And we don't quit tinkering with this tool until we get results along that line. 
And human factors considerations are also hugely important because it's great to know you get a message that tells you that there's a security breach or you get a cell phone call that, you know, somebody, let's say, text messages you or something. But it's also important to be able to do things like have a topological display where you can actually see where the event happened. And if you click on a particular device or a particular network to get detailed information, if you look at the lower left-hand corner, you might want to see something like mem memory utilization too. Because actually in a real-time event correlation device, memory utilization turns out to be a major issue, as I will tell you really quickly. The major challenges are parsing outputs because they use so many different outlets. Those of you who know about syslog knows that there are literally thousands of syslog formats out there. And unfortunately, when a vendor like, let's say, uh, Sun comes out with a new release operating system, often they change a few things in the syslog format. The salvation for vendors will be Syslog NG, but Syslog NG is by no means, that's the next generation of Syslog. It's not universally accepted. You have to, for data analysis, one of the, the huge challenges is find out what really is worth analyzing, what isn't, what kind of data are you going to store it in each database that you have. When you have a piece of a rule, it's logic, condition, fulfilled, you open something we call a thread. Those of you who have had operating systems know what threads are there. These are application threads. And now the question is then, how, many, how long does your thread stay open? Because the longer the thread stays open, looking for more information, the more memory consumption there is. But if you close the thread off quickly, let's say 15 seconds, because no other related event comes in, then you're going to miss slow and gradual attacks. And some attackers do launch slow and gradual attacks. Also, how long should new data be appended to any single incident. It's the same kind of problem. The longer you wait, the not only more information there is with every incident, but the more memory consumption you have. Resource consumption is always a problem. It's usually memory. We don't really, we've got great hardware. We don't really have problem with CPU utilization, but we do fight memory management problems from time to time. And also, do you want to put an intrusion detection server on the machine that's actually doing the event correlation, and I say, heck no. Heck no. Leave those cycles for something else. Get, let some other device process the intrusion detection data and send it to you. Don't reinvent the wheel on your event correlator machine. You have to worry about integrating vulnerability scans, especially if you have more than one vulnerability scanner. And also the question is, how can you really create great macro correlation rules. It's not easy. It sometimes takes a long time. Some of the rules that I have thought of have taken a month or two to actually refine to the point where I think they're finally usable in the product. And if the quality assurance people test it and it doesn't re reveal the results we want, then I have to go back to the drawing board. So in conclusion, we used to just talk about intrusion detection. But lately, intrusion detection event correlation has been surfacing as an increasingly important topic. And it's becoming to the point where intrusion detection and intrusion detection event correlation are merging into one area. I can't say that it's really important to understand that event correlation requires more than just intrusion detection system data. You need to get data from routers, from switches. You need to get data from firewalls. You need to get data from individual hosts. You need to get data from things like web servers and FTP servers if you want really good correlation. I will say also,
that the quality of rules that you have makes a huge difference. I've looked at some, you know, freeware products and things like this and looked at the quality of their rules and I'm confident that they would not achieve the kinds of benchmark scores that a system that has much more sophisticated rules would be able to produce. And let me just say that if you're looking for what might happen in the future, I think number one, all of security is moving up to layer seven of the OSI model, all of security there. We need to understand what happens at the application layer better. Event correlation is no exception. If we don't really understand what's happening there, a lot of times people can masquerade their activity at lower layers, like layer two and three. And I know some of you are Unix people and you just want four layers and that's fine. But we, we have to deal with seven layers if we deal with the totality of operating systems out there because some operating systems have, I won't say which, have superfluous layers. And then also, you need more sophisticated alert fusion. And that is a problem because if you don't want to be annoyed by alert after alert after alert if there's only really one set of related attacks going on. And I don't think the models we have for alert fusion are nearly good enough. And that's something that I, as a CTO of this company, are working on very hard. And then also, I think that one of the futures of this whole area is high-speed data mining. Because, I mean, we do as much as we can in near real time, but the fact is there's enough slow and gradual attacks out there to where we're going to miss some stuff that if we now also did data mining, we could probably pick these attacks up. Let me tell you that the worst attack I saw at UC Berkeley happened about three years ago, and we did not discover this attack for about two and a half months after it happened. And the only reason we discovered this attack was we were able to go back to our our archive of data, and we were able to use the, F, the fgrep command and use it, to, so we piped one fgrep to another and found combination of events that told us, yeah, somebody broke in. And sure enough, it was actually a whole gang of attackers who had broken in from Brazil. They, they called themselves the boys from Brazil. And also, the one last point I would try to make is that advances in event correlation really do show that there is a symbiosis between the kind of basic research that's being done and published in journals out there and also the applied re research that is being done by, by companies like myself. And that's a, that's a good thing to realize because it means that if you do end up out in industry and you are charged with a creative function as far as being a computer scientist, that there is some help in underlying concepts out there in some of the basic research that, that has occurred. Thanks much for your attention. And yeah, we have time for. A we question. do have time for a few. Um, you kept using the word correlation, but it seems kind of. Uh, when I look at this, I see more like causal inference or path analysis or maybe even using something like structured equation modeling at, at, at the end of the day because it's kind of like event A follows event B follows event C. So, I mean, how good is correlation at, at detecting that? Would it be different? Would it be better to use causal inference or something along the lines of, you know, path analysis? Uh, I guess that's my first question. And then the second question is, um, a lot of people are focusing on extrusion detection. Uh, how, how, what's your point of view on that when, when, when I mean, in, in the larger scale of things? Well, you have to explain what you meant by your second question, but to answer your first question, unfortunately, sometimes terms stick that aren't the best terms in the world. And a good example is the term intrusion detection in the first place. That's a terrible term. 
But unfortunately, the person who thought of it was the seminal thinker in the field. His name was Richard Anderson. He, in 1980, put a seminal paper through to the government, and the term intrusion detection stuck. Why is intrusion detection an awful term? Because much more than intrusions happen, right? Denial of service attacks are the most common kind of attack on the internet. So correlation probably has unfortunately fallen in the same problem, and you're 100% right. And I can see things like Petri nets and things like this being very useful in this kind of analysis, too. I agree with you. Now, you need to explain your second question, if you don't mind. Yes, you answered my second question. <laughs> Accidentally? Yeah. I like those. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? Any of you inspired to go into this area? It really is fun. I have to tell you, if you want to have fun on your job, this is a fun thing to do. And it's the kind of thing where you lose track of time. If you can do that on a job, it's worth something. Plus, the beach is only three miles away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you give various numbers of performance. So what kind of data do you evaluate the What kind of data do we use? Where do you get the data? Well, usually from uh, Bayesian detection uh, models. Okay, uh, so what, what you really have is, I, I'm going I'm to speak a little bit, well, I'm going to speak mathematically. What you functionally have is uh, nominal data, right? You have either one, we had an alert, or zero, no, we didn't have an alert, right? I mean, whether you, you generate your own traffic or do you collect traffic out in the wild? Okay, how do we test it? We go and get a tool like... Uh, their, their Encore, uh, Encore Technologies has a tool that just launches its own set of attacks, and it knows what to do if it roots the system and where to go from there, and we let a tool like that go. We also have a tool called the Port Replicator, which launches enough of attack to, to trigger intrusion detection systems and firewalls without going through the attack all the way. We use a variety of tools. We also use black box testing. But in order to do the Bayes and uh, uh, evaluation correctly, That's right. Because we launch discrete series of attacks. Okay, let's launch 20 attacks. They will be this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Then we see what the event correlator picked up. Okay? And see what it did pick up. And then on that basis can calculate correct detection rates and false alarm rates. How many what? How many rules? Um, well, we use very, very de de detailed, high-level rules, and we have about 75 of them. Yeah. Yeah. About 75 seems to do the trick for what we need to do, but we're always evolving new rules. I'm, I'm working on a new set right now, as a matter of fact. So we'll probably be, by our next release, up to about 80. But our most critical rules came in about our first two dozen. By our first two dozen, I think we captured the set of things that would pick up most incidents. And by the way, sometimes it's really interesting how this thing works. I never thought I'd be getting into anything like this before I did it. But uh, one of the most interesting things is sometimes, let's say rule number three will fire, but for the same incident, rule 17 and 60 will fire. And we think that's okay. Because more than one rule's logic was fulfilled, it's probably better that you have all those rules fire than, you, than you'd had no rules fire. But there are some kinds of incidents that will trigger more than one rule's logic. And sometimes it's a little confusing to the, to the novice monitor. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, 
is 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 anomaly based uh, intrusion detection still uh, as impractical as that when I last checked? Is anomaly based? Well, first of all, let me explain what anomaly based intrusion detection is, just in case somebody's not heard the term. You build up certain profiles. Of, you can build up certain profiles of your behavior. Like I get to work early. I'm usually work by seven in the morning. Believe it or not, I know that sounds awful. And I usually leave work by about six o'clock at night. So we can build up a profile of my usage pattern such that if there's activity on my account at two forty-five in the morning. That would be so far out in terms of standard deviations, statistical standard deviation, that we would fire, a, you know, a report. Yes, uh, profile or anomaly-based intrusion detection has its problems. It's used heavily still by the CIA and the FBI and uh, in a few other very sensitive contexts. But in general, the problem is too many false alarms. We just get too many false alarms, and nobody seems to know how to lower those false alarms down to a lower. I did a, a project for an unnamed agency of the government after I left Purdue in 2001 in which they were trying to get a behavior analysis going and when we benchmarked the tool same problem uh, false alarm rate of nine percent that's unacceptably high you cannot have false alarms around that rate so as far as building profiles of user behavior and then seeing and also of network behavior and network behavior profiling is a little more efficient because if you let's say we have so many gigabits of traffic that go over this network segment, but now it jumps up to five times that, well, probably you need to know about that. And that's been more successful in determining things like de distributed denial of service attacks. So the, as far as the anomaly-based approach, if you do network profiling, it works better than for individual humans. Okay. Yeah, one last question. Have you had any issues uh, with with the software not being able to detect uh, a distributed attack from multiple hosts because of the high level uh, rules that it's looking at? Uh, good, excellent question. I think everybody could hear that one. And the answer is, yeah, and here's why. Because when somebody launches a distributed denial of service attack, they might launch from 100 different source IP addresses, of which two are valid addresses. And when those addresses are spoofed, it screws our rules up. Yeah, that's a problem. We'll still catch the person by being able to trace where the few valid packets came from, but it's a much more difficult task, and we're much more likely to miss what really happened with that attack. You're right. Okay. Go enjoy the rest of your evening, and hopefully it'll warm up here before too long. I remember by the end of the first week of April, uh, March, usually got up to like 40, right? Yeah. I guess not. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.